Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What does it mean to worship power? You imagine there is another question, but your art, politics, theology, television programs, pet social issues, news media, blogs, family squabbles, and even your benign internet posts, especially the ones where you post personal pictures, are all about your power. When you express sympathy about any grievance, how hard you work, how much you or they suffered, how terrible that tragedy is, how barbaric they are, you are wielding your power. So the wheels of this power, which look like the current state of affairs in the world, keep on turning against you and me the only teaching that systematically undermines the stench of your power rises in power out of the biblical text the only valid response to war and violence is the teaching of the cross the West loves to preach about this when other people suffer under their boot. By other, I mean those whom you do not see. But when those whom you do see suffer an unbearable trauma, you see them only because you see yourself in them. You see people who look like you. Brothers and sisters, this is not empathy. It is idolatry of the worst kind. The prophet David said, they have eyes, but they cannot see. To have empathy is not to assert power to take revenge. It is to feel broken with those who have been broken. And if you are a follower of Jesus, which de facto we are not, it is to be broken with them. You cannot be sad about human suffering and call for more suffering with lust in your eyes. Friends, wake up. Something is wrong. We are on the wrong path. I won't catalog the lengthy litany of injustices we have committed against the little children of those whom you do not see, nor will I capitulate to the premise of the Western media, which universally celebrates any violence that legitimizes its colonial premise, which is an affront to God. 
my reference is the scriptural God. Him alone do I serve. He is against me, against you, and against them too. I'll take him as my master any day over anyone. Before you open your mouth to argue with me, look up and take a look around. How our Western individualism, solipsism, and market worship turning out for everyone. Be honest, how are things turning out? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 503 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It is really difficult to explain to what is seemingly a universe adrift and drenched in the Kool-Aid. It's just practically unimaginable to conceive of getting that universe to hear what I'm about to say. It is pathologically insane. It's sociopathic. It is beyond corrupt to have such disregard for the hegemony of the Almighty, who is the only one who has dominion over the land and over the lifeblood, the demim, as Father Paul explained in his most recent episode of Tarazi Tuesdays, to have such disregard for the boot of the Almighty God, which is the only boot any of us should hope to have firmly planted on our neck, that you would not only ignore the value of a human being's life, but gleefully rejoice in the death of another human being whom you claim to be your kin in order to gain legitimacy to erase the life of the one whom you consider subhuman. I use the word subhuman, Richard, and I hate to use it because Scripture has no regard for Ha'adam with respect to the other living creatures on the land and in the sea and in the air. We are not special. So the pathology of the Kool-Aid drinkers is that their corrupt and sociopathic premise begins with the idea that Ha'adam is better than the other creatures. And then on that basis, they compare the human beings they don't respect to the other creatures. And wrapped up in all of that is a sociopathic glee and rejoicing when the human beings they claim to love, the ones that are on their side, suffer and die. And the crocodile tears flow so that they have a justification for the subjugation of the other so that they can plant their boot and they can 
control what belongs to God, the land and the bloods. This is colonialism. And the stupidity, the sheer stupidity of what's happening in the Middle East, like the stupidity of what happened in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, is that the Arabs and the Jews are brothers and sisters. That's the point, Rich, we've been trying to make by showing systematically down the line the interconnection between biblical Hebrew and spoken Arabic. This whole stupid argument about who came first, you sound like the freaking Byzantines. We were the first. What do you mean we were the first? There's only one God. I was first. Nobody was first. The seed is first, and it is God's seed. Everybody else is irrelevant. It's not that the Native Americans were better than the white colonials. It's that the whites were colonials. Colonialism is the issue. I don't know what else to say, Rich. Jesus in the text today belongs to no city. He doesn't belong to this group or that group. And he only has one father, and even the demons know who his father is, and that is God. That's the premise of Scripture. Like you said, Father, there's one boot. As humans try to call each other subhuman, of course, that makes no sense in Scripture, because the human being is just one of the offspring of the heavens and the earth, among the Toledot. Just like the land, like the plants, it's all the same thing. It's all under God's purview. And he divvies up the land as is needed, and everyone gets their allotment. And that's it. I mean, in the Jubilee, no matter what business transpired among human beings, at the end of the Jubilee, it all goes back to where it was. It gets a reset. Reset to what? Reset to what God said. So God lets you play around for seven years to go and trade and do this and move here and move there and go into debt or collect debt or whatever. And then seven years, he starts over. His will reigns. And understanding that his will reigns is ultimately the point. When you see the brothers fighting between Ukrainians and Russians, when you see brothers fighting between Arabs and Jews, when I say brother, it doesn't mean people who love each other and take care of each other. I've talked to a lot of people who say, they can't be my brother. Look at how those people are treating us. That's not what I'm talking about. Brothers, I mean children of the same inheritance. According to scripture, that's what siblings are. Siblings are ones who get their inheritance from the same chunk of stuff. That's what a sibling is. You share in the inheritance, a single inheritance. Siblings is not how you treat each other. Sibling is who your father is. So to say they're not my brother, who are you to say? It's up to the father to say who your brother is and who it isn't. Today, I'm commanded that everyone is my brother, and so I have to treat everyone as my brother. Doesn't matter which side of the conflict, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, whether it's Israel and Palestine, I am not allowed to take a side because I have one father. And whatever he allots is what I have to go with. And Jesus in this today's section, whether they kick him out of the city or they prevent him from leaving the city, he's going to go where he wants to go, but not because he wants it, but because he is the son of God and has a commandment to follow. And the commandment he has to follow is to preach the word of his father. And this is all that matters. 
and the flowing bloods, like you said, Father, like the land, those belong to God. That is why human beings are not allowed to murder another human being, is because the blood belongs to God. They're not allowed to claim that this land belongs to us because it's an inheritance from the Father. This is always how it works. The lifeblood and the land belong to God alone, and we are the children, not children, because we're beloved. He may love us, but that's not why we're children. It's because we inherit from what he offers to us, what he allots to us, and it doesn't belong to us then. It doesn't become ours then, that then we can kick other people off of it. You're still expected to accept the stranger and the widow and the orphan onto your land. And you even have to let them eat from what's left over of your grain. You have to allow the earth that God provided to you and your clan to sustain the stranger and the widow and the orphan who are residing in your land. And in this reading today, Jesus is the one spending the time out in the wilderness, subsisting on what his father provides to him. What amazes me, Richard, is that the fundamentalist extremists keep referring to other human beings who are land mammals in Genesis as animals or less than animals. I mean, someone said it on national public radio, and of course, they let it stand because everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid. They referred to <laughs> they referred to us as animals. But what is mind-boggling is that scripture refers to us all as animals. There's no difference between us and the other creatures that crawl upon the earth. We are all the mishpahot in scripture. We are the families of the earth, which includes all of the creatures that crawl upon the earth. So even when you insult us, you can't insult us because we are under the boot of scripture. And I wish you would be too, so we could move on from this genocidal nonsense. When the day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. There's too much excitement in this verse relative to this discussion. First thing I want to point out, just in terms of the language, this word in Greek, imeras, imera, day, in Hebrew, of course, is yom, which should be on everybody's mind because of this important day of atonement, yom kippur. We all need a day of atonement for Christ's sake. All I want to say about this word is it's the same word in Arabic, yom. There is so much terminology in the biblical Hebrew that carries over into spoken Arabic. Maybe everyone is trying to convince me that the Arabs are so different from the Jews because in the biblical Hebrew, there's so much in common with spoken Arabic that it embarrasses everybody. Maybe you can't stand looking at your own reflection in the Semitic languages. 
I don't know what it is. But know this. When the voice of the shepherd is proclaimed, there is your brother. And don't you forget it. The other interesting thing, Richard, and we were chatting about this before the program. Jesus is trying to get away. He's trying to go to the midbar. This word, we've talked about this in the past when we were doing Matthew. Erimon, sometimes translated secluded, sometimes translated as wilderness in the Septuagint, corresponds to the midbar. And this connects to this broad discussion in Father Paul's masterpiece, The Rise of Scripture. We've explained the absolute significance of the triliteral Dabar, which doesn't correspond in any shallow way to the Greek logos. I mean, obviously it does, but logos can't carry the functionality of the triliteral Dabar. We've talked about that in previous episodes. I'm not going to go through all of the different examples of the triliteral Dabar again today on the program, except to say that Jesus is interested in this important function of speaking his father's Dabar from the Midbar. So it's the Erimon Topon, and the topos corresponds to this word in Hebrew, makom, which again is also an Arabic word, which means place, makam, which brings out the significance of the midbar. As a place, makama, for storytelling, istakama, a place to be upright or to go straight, where someone is standing. So it's even connected to this idea of being righteous, taqweem, to be correct. And you hear actually the connection to qama, which is again this notion of being established. You have the same thing in Hebrew. What is established? God's covenant, his teaching. All of this relates to the notion of Midbar. So Jesus, Richard, is trying to get away because his interest always is his father's teaching from the Midbar. That is his mission. It is the scroll of Isaiah. So you push a little bit further, this word ochlos, I never noticed this before, is sometimes rendered kahal in the Hebrew. I never noticed that, Rich. We often think of ochlos in the negative sense, which makes sense because they're getting in the way of Jesus getting out to the midbar. But it's interesting because he's trying to go out to the midbar, which is where he wants to call people to hear the voice of his father's instruction, but they don't want him to go there. They're trying to hold him down. They're trying to keep him back. And this verb that is translated as keep, katecho, corresponds in the Hebrew to ahaz, which is to seize or to grasp, which, <laughs> again, I'm going to keep bringing up the Arabic 
this word ahaz, which means to seize, to grasp. In Arabic, ahada means he seized, he grabbed, is related to the action of holding on to something or someone. They're trying to grab him. Like you said, they're trying to hold him back. So the crowd should be answering the kahal. They should be the ecclesia that is on the move in the wilderness, like the tent and the tabernacle in Exodus. But they don't want that. They want the city rich. They want colonialism. They want to be able to put someone under their boot instead of being under the boot of the one God and Father of Jesus Christ. And that's the problem. It's two sides of the same coin. We have the one city, and they're trying to kick him out because they don't like what he has to say. And here they go out to find him in the wilderness, and they tried to prevent him from leaving. Either way, you're trying to tell Jesus what to do. You're not listening to him. There's a reason why we've been suspicious of the okli or the ochlos, is because it's the crowds, and the crowds are usually very emotional. (laughs) They get very excited by miracles and by fancy things that Jesus does, and he just was casting out demons and healing people, and that generally gets the the ochlos really excited. And that is a very suspicious place to be because they're not listening. The demons know their place. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. The people don't know their place. They're like, Jesus, why don't you stay with us? You can be with us. You'll be one of us. We'll keep you here. And Jesus says, I'm not here for you. I'm here for all these different groups of people all over the place. Jesus is not going to show loyalty to anyone other than his Father. And for him to stay here would be to be disloyal to those others who have a need to hear the message. Again, we talked about the boot a moment ago. The one to whom one shows loyalty is the one one honors, and that is God. That's the only one you're allowed to show that respect and that loyalty. And the excited people who want him to stay around, because, you know, someone might be getting sick, you know, it'd be nice, you know, just set up a pharmacy of Jesus and you just bring people in and they get healed and then they go home. Well, what about all the other people who need to be taken care of? It's selfish. We have the land to take care of our people. Sorry, there's not enough for you. You're going to have to go find your own. This is the attitude of the individualist. This is the worst part of the clan that exists, is that people are in it for themselves and to take care of their own people, that they get the advantage, whereas Jesus gets the advantage from nobody. The demons bow, but the human beings don't even know how to bow. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So it's striking in Luke that he began among the Gentiles, but he's moving to the leadership of Judea. That's an interesting twist, Richard. Usually it kind of works the other way around. I mean, in the storyline, he's beginning with his own family in Nazareth, but it's still among the Gentiles. That's what's nice about literature. You can play with this imagery. 
He's still beginning with his tribe, but it's among the Gentiles, and now he's moving on the leadership of Judea. But he's still, interestingly, coming from the Midbar. No matter what, he's always coming from the wilderness, from the lonely place in English. But it's not lonely because where he stands, he stands with the voice of the Father. Remember, the beginning of Luke, it's not the voice of Jesus. It's the voice of the Father. It's the Father's instruction, the Father's teaching. That is the power that Jesus wields, which, if you are faithful to the triliteral of Midbar, Dabar, it's destruction, but it's also pasture. It's bringing the teaching from this locality in the middle of nowhere, which imposes, I want to say, Richard, that it imposes obedience, but that's not quite right. You either live under the boot or you die by not living under the boot. This whole notion of a choice, which is how we like to frame things in a Western cultural ideological setting, is incompatible with the grammatical functionality of midbar, debar. Because if you don't accept, or rather, if you don't submit to life under the boot at the midbar, you don't live. And it's not because anything is done to you. It's because you find life when you submit to the life that's being provided. If you don't submit, you don't partake in what's being provided, which makes you a dummy. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar, listeners? What do you want to bow down to? What boot do you want fixed on your neck? The problem isn't ideological. The problem is not sociological. The problem isn't the system. There is no good system. The problem is which God's boot you want on your neck. Once you submit aslama to the one God, then you're free. There's no freedom without submission. There's no peace without submission. And that's why everybody is screwed. Because in the modern world, nobody wants to bow down and submit. It's as simple as that. Nobody, I don't care what religion you are, I don't care what you say you believe, I don't see anyone bowing down to God. I don't see any sheep. I see lots of people with the boot firmly planted on their neck, but it's the wrong boot. When Jesus says that he is going to evangelizome, the kingdom of God to other cities, it's his loyalty to God that he has to give this message. Evangelizome, remember angelos is a messenger, not just an angel. It's someone who delivers a message. He has a job, and that's to deliver a message. What's a good messenger? The one who gets to the other person and gives the message. How do you know your mailman is good? Because the mail gets in the box. 
That's his job. And you're like, oh, but we love to have you. You should stay and you should not. No, I have mail to deliver. Like I got a job to do here. I got to go put the messages in people's boxes. That's my job. And I like how you mentioned the sheep because in scripture, it's nonsense to think about one sheep bowing down to another sheep. It doesn't make any sense. When it comes to a flock, everyone's just a sheep. And Ezekiel talks about the mean sheep that like pushes other sheep around. But the shepherd has to deal with that sheep because it's causing chaos. So if you're a sheep and you're trying to decide whether to bow down to a sheep or to the shepherd, that sheep you want to bow down to is either doing the will of the shepherd or is not. And if that sheep is following the will of the shepherd, good, follow it, because you're following the will of the shepherd anyway. But if that sheep decides it's going to follow a different will and go do its own thing, it's better to stay with the shepherd. You'll live longer. He knows where the water is, and he knows how to take care of the wolves. That other sheep doesn't know what he's doing. doesn't make sense. The problem is that when one is loyal to God, one appears disloyal to human beings. I heard the story of this Israeli woman who was helping in southern Israel with tending to wounded Israelis from the attacks by Hamas. She was a fierce fighter for Palestinian rights, a well-known fighter for human rights for Palestinians. And she says, people think that I'm being disloyal. She said, I'm loyal to human beings. If these human beings need help, I help them. If these human beings need help, I help them. That's it. This is how we have to think that all are, like you said, the children of Noah. That's it. And when you hear in the words and in the language the connection between the people, it makes it even more heartbreaking. Just like when I hear the connections between Russian and Ukrainian languages, you can't help but hear the similarities between the two. It's heartbreaking to know how similar the people are who are fighting one another. This is what Jesus is loyal to, is the God who is in charge of the flock. Even if the sheep and the flock don't get along, that's not God's problem unless they cause problems for the other sheep. He, Jesus, preaches the kingdom of God. Here it is explicitly. God is the one who rules. God is the one who controls. And you were mentioning about going to Judea. This is an interesting point here because there's a question. There's some other manuscripts that don't read Judea. It reads Galilee. Well, that's funny. Why would it say Judah and some in Galilee and others? Well, the next thing we know, he's in Gennesaret, which is right there in Galilee. Do we think he went all the way to Judah and then came all the way back to Galilee? That's strange. Why would he have this need to go to Judea? Why does he say that that's where he has to preach in the synagogues of Judea? And then he stays in Galilee because he is interested in the entire region and all the people, not just one nation, not just one city, one whole area. But yes, he's got his eyes set on Jerusalem, not in order to take over Jerusalem, but to establish the kingdom of God, not in Jerusalem, but in spite of Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, but he does not need Jerusalem. All he needs is the Midbar, the desert. And this is where Jesus is found by the people, but he's not even going to stay there. He's going to go to the next synagogues so he can continue to preach and do his job. You know, Rich, there was a level of disgust that I felt during the invasion of Ukraine, obviously, I felt disgust for what was happening, but it was also about the reaction in the media. 
because I felt that the emotional response was gratuitous and exploitative in the same way that I feel the emotional response to the atrocities that happened this week are exploitative and gratuitous, but in a way that was this week, in a way that was much more personal and I want to say pathological. This week, what we're seeing in the news is kind of an institutionalized and perfected pathology of grievance in which there's a kind of gleeful rejoicing in death to justify death. It's just so horrible. I'm not going to give specific examples because I don't want to even enter into arguments with people. And he said, she said, well, that's what they really meant. I don't care. You're wrong. I'm interested in the gospel. Don't talk to me. I don't want your response or your feedback. I'm teaching. But there's another aspect even that goes beyond the pathology of bloodlust that was common to the Ukraine response and the response to this week's events. And that is the complete, not just blindness too, but open dehumanization of people that we don't identify with. I mean, call it white, call it Western or democratic or whatever words you want to use. People who don't carry iPhones. I, I, I don't know. Whatever. People who aren't like us, be they Edward Said called it Orientalism. I mean, you can come up with whatever words you want. It really doesn't matter. Be they from Yemen, from Afghanistan, from Gaza, a place with 2 million people, half of which are children, and the median age is 19, and there's no clean drinking water. What happened this week wasn't an insurgency or... I mean, you can call it a terrorist attack. You can call it all kinds of things. There's plenty of words that you can use to label it. It was a prison riot. Yes, it was horrible, but it's a prison riot. Nobody talks about any of this because you don't see it. And then when it shows up on your radar screen, you continue to try to ignore it. And when you talk about it, when you finally have to talk about it, you dehumanize and the level of dehumanization this week is kind of scary. It's gone beyond the normal level of dehumanization to levels of scary that just make me uncomfortable. I'm not afraid. I'm afraid for this society and what it's become. I'm afraid for our children. I remember hearing James Baldwin say that he was afraid for the black community. I'm afraid for everybody. The way that our mainstream institutions are talking, the way that our politicians talk, the way that people in media talk, it's shitty. It has nothing to do with which side is right or wrong. People have gone astray. 
So for those of you who still claim to trust in the scriptural God, don't buy into it. Just keep studying scripture. Learn Hebrew. Learn New Testament Greek. Study, teach, and write. Because the people in charge today don't know what they're doing. And that's not hyperbole. It's plain. It's obvious to everyone. So it's our responsibility to do the best we can for the generation to come. And the only hope is knowledge. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.
have just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.